there's a common thread with successful individuals. They've worked hard, but they've also made hundreds, if not thousands of mistakes. What if you could learn from their mistakes without any consequences? What if you could hear from talented individuals who have achieved great success in their given field? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to shorten your learning curve, learn from the best, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. I'm your host, Mike Perry, and welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Perry, and today we're going to talk about mobility, flexibility, movement competency, and how much do you really need? Now, mobility and flexibility have been a hot topic for, gosh, at least the last decade, maybe even a little bit longer. And there's so many systems and there's so many different ways to improve the way you move that I think for a lot of people looking to improve their overall movement quality, they just get confused. So today I want to talk about some different strategies and my thoughts on flexibility and mobility and movement competency. And and we're going to dig a little bit deeper into how to achieve those things, but really how much do you need, right? And that's a big part of it is what is your end goal? And that's when we really need to step back and understand how to approach our own programming, but the programming of our clients. So we're going to dive right in. Um, if we're talking about mobility, in general, people talk about joints. So they're just talking about the essentially available range of motion of the joint. Now, we have active and we have passive mobility. I always want you to think of passive as potential, so P and P. Your passive mobility is the joint's movement potential. You don't actually have ownership of that movement yet, but we know that it's available. Think of it as credit, right? It's something that you can work up to, but you do not currently have. And when it comes to active mobility, that is a range of motion that you can actively control. So those are really the two differences in a nutshell, and it's important to understand the difference. So in order to have really quality active mobility, you need to have potential first. So you need to understand that you have passive mobility or there's actually movement availability there, and then you can start to work on actively owning that. In addition to that, we have to talk about flexibility. And when people talk about flexibility, they're usually talking about essentially stretching the muscles or lengthening the muscles. So flexibility tends to be more about muscles and mobility tends to be more about joints. And oftentimes people interchange the terminology, which is which is fine to be honest, because really what's the end goal, right? The end goal is to move better so you can do whatever it is you want to do. So, but we have to understand that a lot of these drills and these exercises to improve flexibility and or mobility, they take a lot of time. And the question you need to ask yourself, and you have to have this discussion with your clients is, how much time do you really want to dedicate towards these drills? I mean, I've seen people say that they spend 35, 40 minutes a day working on mobility. And if I'm being honest with you, um, if you're spending that much time day in and day out on your mobility, it's probably not working because If you spend a ton of time, let's say you dedicate three months to quality mobility, flexibility training and movement competency training, it should improve. But if you're finding that you have to do 45 minutes a day, um, it's probably an overkill and it's probably unnecessary. I'm not saying that you can't take time to improve the way that you move. Not at all. I think you should. And I think you should have deliberate times where you're focusing on improving range of motion in general. But I think a big mistake people make is they chase these 
these drills that look fancy or they, they say they want to do X and Y and Z or they see these genetically gifted people online that are doing this fancy stuff um, and they want to they wanna replicate that or they want to learn how to do that. And a big part of it is genetics, right? Um, if someone is hypermobile, well, guess what? They're going to have a much easier time getting into positions than others. Now, whether or not they have control of that mobility is a different conversation, but you get someone that's genetically hypermobile, uh, look at the bite and brighten scale. That'll give you some great insight on that. They're going to do things that are much more impressive than the average person. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to get there because genetics do play a role. So if you are someone that in general, let's just call you a quote unquote type person, and then you're trying to emulate some guy that's hypermobile, that also spends a ton of time on his active mobility, it's not going to work. It will not work for you, so do not chase that. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't try to improve the way that you move. It's just you have to understand the reality of the situation. You're never going to move like that individual that's hypermobile. It's not going to happen. And if you try to chase that, you're going to find yourself frustrated and wasting uh, a ton of time. But we have to understand a few other things when it comes to mobility and flexibility and improving your movement. The most important thing is taking that newfound mobility or newfound flexibility and using it in larger patterns and integrating it into the standing patterns. Because guys, I've seen so many people lay on their backs and do a bunch of cool drills. I've seen people in the half kneeling position do a bunch of cool drills. I've seen people in the quadruped position do a bunch of cool drills. I've seen people in 90-90 position do a bunch of cool drills. And there's nothing wrong with that. And they look they look cool and they feel good. Don't get me wrong. I use them myself. But at a certain point, most sports, most sports, you have to develop that, that movement competency in the larger patterns, in split stance patterns, single leg patterns, and, and bilateral stance patterns. Most people don't need to sit on the floor and do a bunch of mobility. Now, with the exception would be grappling because grapplers do spend a lot of time on the ground. Um, so... That would be the exception, right? And that's when I would actually argue that active mobility is super important, but also just be really, really being really strong and being really durable is, is super important as well. But we have to understand that in sport, with the exception of grapplers and ground-based activities, which, you know, MMA is partly on the ground, partly standing. I don't know, you know, how it breaks out, what percentage is on the ground and what percentage is, is standing. But it's important to understand that most people when it comes to their sport, are going to be in a standing position. They're going to be running. They're going to be cutting. They're going to be changing levels, etc. And for those people, that is the type of movement that they need. They don't need to do a bunch of floor-based movements when they're running, cutting, changing directions. It simply doesn't make sense. Now, you can do those floor-based movements to improve your active mobility, but immediately you need to go and work into larger patterns. So what do I mean by larger patterns, right? So for example, if you can have a really nice, beautiful deep squat, I don't care if it's with a kettlebell, two kettlebells, barbell, sandbag, if you can have a just a beautiful looking deep squat, we all, we all know what that looks like, that is going to be one of the most advantageous ways to improve your health and your function, and you're going to get a hell of a lot stronger, right? Same thing. Um, if you look at like split stance patterns and rear foot elevated split squats, um, some of my favorite ways to improve um, movement competency within those patterns is by simply doing like split squat isos where you, you know, you start in the half kneeling position, you take a big stride forward and you do some isometric holds in that position. That's going to give you uh, positional strength. And that's also going to improve your stability. 
It's going to be an awesome drill. Same thing with, um, I do rear foot elevated split squats. I do front foot elevated split squats. Um, those are just two different ways that you can cement that, that mobility that you need, but it's with the larger patterns. And then if we look at single leg squats or single leg patterns, um, like a single, a true single leg squat, if you can do a single leg squat to parallel or below, I'm pretty sure that you've got decent ankle mobility, decent hip mobility, et cetera. And guys, we all know what a good single leg squat looks like. Uh, people that can do really, really good pistols, which again, pistols aren't for everybody, but that's just an example. Um, and Mike Boyle has done a great job of showcasing some of his athletes doing single leg squats with a ridiculous amount of weight, right? So I guarantee if you've got 80 pounds in each hand and you're doing single leg squats to parallel, you've probably got decent mobility, but you can also control that. Um, and then lastly, um, we have to look at multi-planar uh, movements because a lot of people do things on train tracks, right? So people are doing their squats on train tracks and they're even doing their split squats on train tracks. Um, I would argue that uh, implementing exercises like a, a lateral lunge or a lateral squat, whatever the heck you want to call it, I really don't care, or a COSAC, those are awesome drills because it just gets you moving in various different planes. And um, there's also some people call it the curtsy lunge, whatever you want to call it. I don't really care. That's another nice one. Um, but I would argue that if you really want to improve your overall movement competency, you have to start with, yes, you can start with ground-based movements, start by looking at your, your passive uh, mobility, then try to control that passive mobility with active, but then immediately go into patterns. And if you can do that, you're going to cement that mobility. It's like hitting save on the document and you're going to move that much better. And, and I'm going to be honest with you guys, that that systematic approach that I'm telling you about is exactly what we do in FMS. It's just, it's just worded a little bit differently, but we want to improve our overall mobility first. And then we're going to go into various types of motor control and then larger fundamental patterns. That is the exact algorithm we use in FMS. It's just worded a little bit differently. And that is how most people will improve their, their overall movement quality. Um, so we have to also look at the upper body and, and how that works, right? So if you're trying to improve just let's call it shoulder mobility in general, right? We just can't look at the shoulder and we can't just look at shoulder flexion, which is the big one, right? People just say, oh, I want to improve my shoulder flexion so I can go overhead. Yes, that's awesome. But you have to understand that in order to have quality shoulder flexion, you have to have good control of your thoracic spine, um, good extension of the thoracic spine. And, and I would argue that when we're talking about the thoracic spine, you need to understand that the thoracic spine is a is a kyphotic um, curvature of the spine. So when I talk about extension, you're actually not moving into true extension. You're just moving into a position with less flexion of the thoracic spine, but we want to optimize the positioning of the, the thoracic spine. We want to gain as much extension quote unquote, as you can and rotation as well. And then we can address scapular positioning. And lastly, um, what's going on with the glenohumeral joint. But again, we have to look at patterns. So let's say that you are a football player and you're a receiver and you want to be able to catch that ball safely and effectively when it's going overhead. Well, now we're looking at a bunch of different movements and a bunch of different patterns. So if someone's running, okay, they're running down the sideline, they have to turn. So they're in gait, which means you have to have good quality um, hip flexion and extension, right? If you're in the NFL, you're a high-level player, you're going to have to have good hips. Simple as that. Probably have to, good, have, to have good ankle mobility as well. That's another conversation about spats, et cetera. But, and now look, 
So the quarterback throws the ball. You're going to be in gate running. You have to rotate your T-spine right. You have to rotate your T-spine left to see what the heck's going on. And then maybe at some point, you're going to spin completely around. You're going to jump in the air. When you jump in the air, you're probably going to leap off of one leg. And you're probably going to extend way overhead. And you're going to have this global extension-based pattern where you're going to be in, in let's just say, universal spinal uh, spinal extension where you're arching your back. You're, you know, you're in this big position. You're reaching overhead. You're going to extreme shoulder flexion and you grab the ball with one hand, you wrap it up and maybe you score a touchdown, whatever. But my point is, is that if we just focused on static shoulder flexion in a standing position, it's not going to happen, right? Just reaching your hand up is not how we create resiliency. So we have to understand that in order to really develop resiliency with an athlete, we have to look at larger patterns and those patterns need to be specific to the sport. And that was just one example. But there's a different ways that we can do it. So we always want to work on general movement quality and movement competency first. But eventually, depending on the athlete, you're going to have to go down some rabbit holes and you're going to have to get really specific because we really have to look at what the athlete is asking of their body. And um, Eric Cressy does a great job of this with his pitchers. And he, he really breaks down every single component of pitching and then he looks at the parts of that and then goes from there so in a way he's looking at parts but he's also looking at patterns and positions and um, I really admire that about about Eric because he's well, he's a freaking genius too which which it never hurts so um, but anyway so if you look at a, a baseball player right so and and again I'm not a I'm not as well versed on this stuff as is Cressy and Reinhold those guys are just you know when it comes to pitching mechanics those guys are on another level. But if you watch a pitcher, let's say this is a right-handed pitcher, they're going to start in a bilateral stance with their feet together. Okay, then they're going to go into single leg stance. Usually, uh, in this case, being a right-handed pitcher, they're going to be in single leg stance with their right leg. The left knee is going to come up at pretty much end range hip flexion. Um, as they deliver that baseball, they're going to be in this T-spine rotation. Uh, they're going to be in that layback position, which is going to ask their shoulder to be in horizontal abduction and external rotation. They are going to deliver the ball in whatever arm slot that they have. Uh, they're going to land on their left foot, which requires a bunch of hip stability, a ton of internal hip, uh, a ton of internal um, hip uh, mobility on the stance leg, which in this case would be the left leg. And he's going to follow through, and he's going to move the arm into uh, glenohumeral internal rotation, and then that's going to kind of finish the pattern. Actually, it's not going to finish the pattern. Then the the um, the right leg would come up and, and do that big circular motion um, as he falls through. Now, again, I'm not going to break this down as well as Eric can, but you guys get the idea. That's how you specifically look at what an individual needs based on what they're trying to do with themselves or what type of load or stressor they're asking of their body. So now we have to ask, what does the person need and what are they going to act? Uh, what are they going to ask of their body? So the average person trying to lose 10 to 15 pounds, trying to look better in their bathing suit has very, very different needs than the baseball player or uh, major league baseball pitcher. Very, very different needs. So that's why you need to understand how much do they need? Because if you're trying to get someone to lose 10 pounds and look a little bit better in their bathing suit, I'm not sure they need the same. Actually, I'm positive they don't need the same um, active mobility as the major league baseball player. They just do not. So stop trying to force these high-end mobility drills on people when they simply don't need it. Now, I'm not saying that you can't improve their movement quality. 
I'm saying that if they're doing goblet squats, some lunges, some rows, some push-ups, some pull-ups, and that's all they're asking of their body, you need to give them enough movement competency to do those safely and maybe give them a little bit more, maybe give them a buffer, right? Uh, give them more than they need. So if, if a rep or two goes wrong, they're not going to hurt themselves, right? Because we don't want them essentially taxing their system to the point where if at any point something goes wrong, they're going to get injured. That's not exactly what we're looking for, right? So give them what they need and, and give them enough movement, competency, flexibility, mobility. So if they do ask a little bit more of their body, they're going to be okay. They're not going to get injured. But the problem is when people max out what they're, what they're capable of all the time. And that's when, that's when injuries happen. So it's important to really understand what the client needs and, and what they want. And, and some people guys, if you're having that conversation with people and, and, and I had a, a nice talk with my staff the other day about this is some people care about moving better. Some people care about improving their, their quality of life improving function, quote unquote, whatever you want to call function. Um, but at the same time, some people don't, some people do not care at all about that. And you need to have that conversation early with your client, because if your client does not care about moving better, they just want to go, they want to exercise. You're going to approach their, their programming very, very differently than the individual that does care. Right? So let's say you have that, that individual that they don't care. They just want to come and let's be honest, they want to get their butts kicked. They want to get a great workout. They have zero interest in acquiring a new skill. They have zero interest in, in spending time on flexibility. Um, and they have, they don't even have much time in general, giving that person 30 minutes of hip mobility drills. I can guarantee you they're, they're out, they're out and they're not going to come back. But what you have to do at that point, if they're not going to focus on those things, which is okay, that's totally okay. You need to make sure that you're giving them exercises in, in a program that will allow them to train, to, to get that training effect that will allow them to burn some calories safely. So then you have to pick exercises that aren't going to jack them up. And how do you do that? Well, that's that's when I use my movement screen, right? I'm an FMS guy. Um, that's how I determine what is going to be an appropriate exercise for that gen pop individual. So you have to understand that. It's as simple as that. If the client has zero interest in, uh, you know, improving their flexibility, mobility, or movement uh, competency, don't give them a bunch of drills, right? Now, what about that individual that comes in? And this happens to me all the time. Hey, Mike, I've done uh, a bunch of physical therapy for my back. Nothing's worked. Um, you know, I've been in and out of this and uh, nothing seemed to work. I go to the Cairo, I get an adjustment every week and nothing seems to work. Well, that's when I, I, I have to have that conversation with someone to say, hey, listen, um, what you've been doing hasn't been working, but yet you're frustrated and you know that something needs to change. And that's when you have to, you know, educate people on what they need. And I would say nine times out of 10, um, what they need, they do need flexibility. They do need better mobility, but we don't spend all the time on there. They need to get stronger and they need to get stronger through ranges of motion. And guys, I'm going to tell you right now, when it comes to like low back rehab, um, you can follow all of these fancy algorithms and stuff to do, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you get someone that's coming to you and they're, they're out of pain and yes, you understand their, their medical history and their background. If you can honestly do a really good job, just getting them to squat, getting them to hinge getting them to lunge row and educating them on how to warm up and how to take care of their body. That is going to be the best way to 
let them live a lifestyle that will not potentially have them being in and out of physical therapy. Because, and again, nothing against physical therapy, but a lot of clinicians are just bound up by coding and insurance and you've got a knee issue, they're, they're, they got to treat the knee, right? Um, who knows, you got a, you may have a really bad ankle issue. I mean, you may have a, a knee issue, which is coming from a jacked up ankle or a locked up ankle or a locked up hip, right? So, but the problem is, is that a lot of the times they can't treat certain things because of coding and insurance, et cetera. So their, their hands are tied. So this is why a really good strength and conditioning coach that understands movement can be so beneficial because we can take that information. And I say we, because I've been doing this for a long time and I know a bunch of other strength and conditioning coaches that are really good at analyzing and programming movement. We can, obviously, if we know what's going on and we, we work hand in hand with that physical therapist, or we know the diagnosis, we can just dive right in. And not only can we work on helping that individual with, with their, their issues, but at the same time, we can do other stuff. We can get them stronger, right? Someone comes in with a, with a grumpy knee. You're not just going to focus on the knee. You can do a bunch of core work, um, you know, do a bunch of upper body work. You do a bunch of uh, joint friendly conditioning, etc. So those are the things that a really good strength and conditioning coach or personal trainer can really help you with is they can take that information from the clinician and continue that process. And that's where the beauty happens. And I've said this a million times, if, if, if personal trainers spent more time understanding rehab and physical therapists spent more time understanding strength and conditioning or strength training, our clients would be in much better shape. So um, it's important to, to understand that it is a process, but oftentimes we need to look deeper and we need to have a skill set that will allow us to take that individual to the, to the next level. So the last thing I want to talk about is um, a lot of people I've seen want to do this in these impressive types of exercises. Um, again, you see some really cool stuff that looks like it belongs in Cirque du Soleil. Um, people doing these crazy handstands and contorting their body and, you know, people doing splits uh, with chairs and this and that. And, and guys, there's nothing wrong with that if that's a goal of yours. But I'm telling you right now, the average person does not need that, nor do they want to do that. I've never in 18 years of being a strength coach had someone say, my goal is to do a split like Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like that's never happened, right? But then again, I've never had someone come in and go, um, my goal is to get a higher FMS score. Even though I'm an FMS guy, pe people just want to feel better and they want to move better. And here's the cool thing is if you understand what you're doing, you can help that individual and it actually will be reflected um, with, with, a, with a nicer FMS score as well. Um, but we need to, we need to really look at what the individual needs and we under, we need to understand that we, we shouldn't waste time. Um, and there are a bunch of ways that we can waste time. Um, but we really have to talk to the client and see what their goals are and see what they're willing to put in. And same thing with yourself, right? How much time do you want to spend on improving your movement quality or do you not care? Or are you simply going to, as a strength coach, personal trainer, are you just going to not improve things and just work around it. And either way is okay, but you just have to be honest with yourself. Um, I will end with, uh, with a little story about myself. So when I started Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, um, I'm not a big guy. I've never been a big guy. I've been moderately strong, but I've never been a big guy. Um, when I started Jiu Jitsu, I was like 185, um, decent amount of muscle. And, but I was doing a lot of the power lifts. Um, you know, it's a lot of time with the barbell. Um, and I was decently strong. Again, I, I, 
nowhere close to a power lifter, but I was, I was decently strong. And when I started grappling, every single person I, I went with was like, dude, you're wicked strong. Dude, you're wicked strong. And I'm like, cool, thanks. Meanwhile, I sucked at jujitsu. I totally sucked at jujitsu, but I was strong. And, and I actually took that as a, as a negative comment in a way. And, and, and hear me out on that. There's nothing wrong with being strong. But most of the time when you're a white belt and, and someone says you're strong, they, it's, not a, it's not a compliment. It's usually they're saying, dude, relax. Or maybe potentially they're frustrated because you're so much stronger than them. Even if they're a higher belt, you're doing things to them that maybe potentially hurts their ego. So, but back to the story, I did a bunch of, uh, you know, I went to competition class and um, because my, my schedule didn't allow me to train at any other time. When I started, I was going at like seven o'clock at night. I'd go and, you know, I'd train hard after a 12 hour day and I'd get home and I'd be wound up. I literally would be like staring at the ceiling, eyes wide open and I couldn't fall asleep and I'd fall asleep at two in the morning, get up at five. And it wasn't, it wasn't working for me. And not to mention the fact that I was so beaten up that I was, you know, chucking down Advil and having to drink a beer or two just to kind of get myself to relax at the end of the night. And guys, that is not, that is not a good idea. But at a certain point, I, I started getting a bunch of back issues, right? And and I was just, I have a history of low back issues. I, I injured my my low back when I was in my early 20s. But I was I was literally found myself over the course of like two to three years, you know, just going on prednisone, getting muscle relaxers. I had three to four rounds of cortisone shots in my low back. And then finally, um, this this is this is where it hit me. And I forget exactly where it was, but it was in the wintertime, um, probably a couple of years into jujitsu as well. It was snowing out. We had a foot of snow. And my boys are like, I've got two sons. My boys are like, dad, can we go out and, uh, can we play in the snow? And I was in so much discomfort and pain that I just couldn't do it. I was like, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry guys. I, I just can't, my back's really bothering me. And that having to say that to my kids is what made me completely rethink about what I need to do for my body. If I'm going to continue my journey in jujitsu. And at that point I said, you know what? I'm not going to worry about squatting heavy. I'm not going to worry about deadlifting heavy right now. Um, I'm just going to worry about getting as healthy as possible. Now, over that time, I, I did a lot of jujitsu. I, I lost some weight. Um, and, and again, I was, never, I was never heavy by any stretch. But just due to the fact that I was so inefficient at jujitsu, I was burning calories. I couldn't even keep up with the food. I was just burning calories like... Uh, you know, like you, you couldn't believe I was just going through and just, I literally couldn't get the food in. And I dropped at first about 10 pounds I'm probably down about 15 now walking around about 170. But, um, but here's the difference. I, I finally said to myself, Mike, like put your ego aside, trying to train uh, on the mats three to four days a week and lift really heavy did not work. It didn't work for me. It simply did not work for me. And that's when I had to make a change. And then what I started to do is at first, I didn't say to myself, Mike, I'm going to do more mobility work or do more flexibility work or this and that. I simply said, I'm going to eliminate the things that I know that are bothering me. And I'm going to add in, excuse me, and I'm going to add in other things. That was simply my approach. I didn't, I didn't go on this global, uh, not global, but I didn't have this long drawn out plan of, Oh, increasing, you know, improving your soft tissue and doing this and doing that and breathing and blah, blah, blah. It was simply, I just, I just basically stopped doing those exercises that were bothering me. And I spent a lot more time on, on body weight training, on split stance patterns, um, a lot more dumbbell work, a lot of the stuff that was a little bit more forgiving for me. And 
and a bunch of kettlebell work as well because uh, kettlebells have always made me feel really good and really resilient. Um, and, and there's something to be said about that because a lot of the times I'll, I'll take time off of kettlebell training, but I shouldn't because every time I, I do it consistently, I feel really good. So that's just me being an idiot, but that's besides the point. But so here's the cool thing, right? So over time, I started feeling a lot better. Um, I will say this. I was also getting better at jujitsu too. So I wasn't beating the hell out of myself as much. I wasn't as reckless as a white belt. Um, and then I got my, uh, my blue belt. And then same thing when I got my purple belt, um, I was more efficient and I had a little bit more skill and I wasn't just basically beating on my body as much because I knew, I knew what I was doing. I didn't have to rely on strength and conditioning and effort. I started to have actually some technique. Now, I mean, I'm just a purple belt. I'm not amazing, but I'm, I'm getting better and it's, it's a work in process, uh, a work in progress. But here's kind of the cool thing is, you know, I'd go out and I would teach for FMS all the time. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to be surrounded by some amazing people and, um, in the FMS curriculum, uh, you know, Gray Cook, uh, Lee Burton, Diane Vivies, Eric Degatti, uh, Brett Jones, uh, just a bunch of amazing people. And those guys have been instrumental in, in helping me out. But here's the cool thing. As we started to like demo these exercises and get screened live, a bunch of my, my scores went up and, and I started to move a little bit better. So I, did, I didn't actively do correctives. I didn't try to focus on certain things. All I did was remove certain exercises and I was feeling better and I, I scored a little bit higher. And for those of you that think the FMS is rubbish and that think it's a waste of time, that's cool. I respect for opinion. I respect your opinion, but I'm telling you right now, um, it, it's the basis of what I do. But I've also seen that changing your programming can absolutely reflect in and moving a little bit better. And that's that's simply how I use the FMS. So it's it's pretty cool to see that process, right? So what it boils down to is what are you asking of your body? What are your goals? How much time do you have? And then lastly, hire someone that understands how to put all of that together because you need to be able to do something that is sustainable and repeatable. And that's really the key to success is sustainability and repeatability. Um, so take your time, check your ego at the door, be smart and follow people and, and take advice from people that have been there that are giving you constant quality information. And I'm talking over years. I'm not talking over months because anybody can sponsor a post and give you some stuff and be gone. I mean, I've seen trends come and go in this industry over the last 18 years. But so just be consistent, guys, and, and understand that it's an ongoing journey when it comes to improving the way you move. But just remember, you have to start incorporating the things that will allow you to to consistently make improvements. And there's a bazillion different ways to waste time. There are so many different ways where you can just simply do stuff to do stuff. But follow that recipe of improving your, your, your you know, improving your mobility and or flexibility, but immediately go to patterns and immediately try to get as strong as you can within those patterns. Like I talked about the squat pattern, the split stance pattern, single leg, and uh, working through various planes as well. So. Um, there's my ramble on, on, uh, mobility, flexibility, and movement competency. And, uh, thanks for listening. And if you have any, uh, any topics you want me to ramble about, shoot me an email at Mike at skill of strength, or you can send me a message on Instagram at coach Mike Perry. 
or you can find me on Facebook at just Mike Perry. So appreciate it and enjoy the rest of your day. Hey there, it's your host, Mike Perry from the Minimum Effective Dose podcast. I just wanted to take a few minutes to say thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate your support. If you do like the podcast, do me a huge favor and subscribe, but also share this with your friends, colleagues, and family. Have an awesome day.